Six years ago, Nicholas Eberstadt published Men Without Work, an in-depth look at the social and economic crises created by the relentless retreat from the labor force by men since 1960. In his revised book, Eberstadt finds that currently, more than 7 million prime-age men ages 18 to 54 are neither working nor looking for work. That's more than 11% of the prime-age male population in the United States, and more than three times the same fraction in 1965. In fact, the proportion of men with no paid work is higher than it was in 1940, at the end of the Great Depression. Everset argues that the joblessness problem among American men amounts to a depression-scale workforce epidemic. Nick Eberstadt, who holds the AEI Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy, joins this episode of Hardly Working for a deep dive into the problem of male worklessness. We're joined in this conversation by Jesse Wall, an AEI research associate who's worked closely with me in examining social conditions affecting men without work. In this episode, we cover the details of the missing men crisis in the past and present connection of work loss to increased painkiller use and deaths of despair, and perhaps most alarmingly, how the worklessness trend is spreading to women. Our conversation covers the dimensions and demographic makeup of missing men, how these non-workers fill their days, and what it might take to get them back to work. Nick Eberstadt, thanks for joining us here on Hardly Working. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you. I, for this, I was reflecting on the fact that the very first thing I ever wrote for AEI with our now president, Robert Doerr, and Harry Holzer over at Georgetown was really a response to the first issuance of Men Without Work. And we, we were wrestling with some of the policy implications. What could we do about the challenge you identified? So this is, a, this is a great time to step back into that work. It's something that is really critically important to me and sort of get the update. So, But before we get into all of that, I wonder if you could just walk us through Nick Everstadt's story. Uh, how does how, how much does, do you want to know? How well, I, as much as we can get. But I, I'm really I like to ask people like, how did you like find your way into being a an econ- a political economist, a demographer, and I mean, like, did you just wake up one day and say, yeah, this is this is my calling, or how did it develop? Well, I mean, I've I've been uh, really lucky all my life, and I guess it's better to be lucky than good. And so my first class. My first day of college, I was at Harvard. I was taking this course called Natural Sciences 118, uh, Population Resources and the Environment. And this uh, phenom named Roger Revelle, who uh, was, I guess at the time also the head of the AAAS, gave this dazzling lecture I said, this is the coolest stuff I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, and it was like I a surprise to, to you. Yeah. And it so was like you yeah. you hit by a, a bolt of light. Yeah, and, and so I was I was 17 years old, and I said, okay, I, I want to have more of this. And, I mean, I made some stumbles and some redos and so forth, but I basically stuck, uh, stuck with this and you know, got graduate training. And uh, I, I came to American Enterprise Institute in 1985, and they've uh, never gotten rid of me since. 
So what's your advice to another 17-year-old entering into their into their college education and wondering about these questions of uh, how they discern um, what their what their future should look like. Well, I can't tell them to be lucky, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what happened to me. I got lucky. I suppose it's a um, follow the stuff that really excites you. I mean, one of the things about stuff that really excites you, it gives you the motivation right. to kind of get over some of the humps and get through some of the lumps that... Uh, that you may find uh, find yourself uh, confronting. So, I mean, it helps with persistence if you're really right. excited about it. Right, right. That no, I, that was a, a an almost conscious decision I made when I started college too. Is like I knew that if I didn't study something I really loved, that I wasn't going to finish. And uh, so it was history, you know, because I knew I could finish a degree in history. Kids, everybody these days is so focused on what's the economic outcome of the probable economic outcome of a particular course of study. That's not the only thing that you have to pay attention to. I have to balance that against interests. So we're doing something a little different today and with the podcast. And I've asked Jesse Wall, who is a research associate on my team at Vocation Career and Work, who has been helping me with a lot of research as it relates to employment, particularly of kind of the, the folks that we think of as the white working class. The center of our thinking about poverty and employment has often, not always, but often in the past been really focused on race, racial minorities in this country and not as much uh, some of the populations of people in isolated regions of the U.S., that are technically in the majority, the racial majority, but struggle with some of the same kinds of challenges uh, relative to disconnection from the workforce and addiction and uh, a whole host of other kinds of social challenges that, that keep them out of the workforce. So Jesse also has the advantage of actually um, being from Appalachia and and kind of witnessing some of these phenomenon uh, up front and uh, up close and personal. Uh, so I, I really thought she could add to our conversation. So Jesse, thanks for coming on with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for letting me join. So let's uh, let's let's get into some of the the work. First of all, just talk about the book itself. This is the second iteration. Tell us why you wrote it and why you have updated it. Well, Brent, what laughingly passes from my career is kind of pointing out things that are um, hiding in plain sight. I've done that in various international questions. Around 2014, it occurred to me that all of this happy talk I was hearing about how the U.S. was at or near full employment wasn't really squaring with the other stuff that I was seeing about how half of uh, Americans thought we were still in a recession. And so I just started kind of like pulling on a thread of this stuff. And I said, oh, holy cow. The unemployment rate is really low, but there's this huge stratum of prime-age men who basically dropped out of the workforce And the reason the unemployment rate looks so peachy keen good is because there are two or three guys who are neither working nor looking for work for every guy who's unemployed and looking for a job. And I started to 
try to look a little bit further at this, and the more I looked, kind of the more troubling it uh, seemed. And I called uh, I, I called this book "Men Without Work: America's Invisible Crisis" because it seemed to be really invisible at this time. There was very little attention that was being paid to this very big economic and social and maybe even political problem. So we've had a lot of things happen over the last six years since this came out, including a, you know, a catastrophe, the, uh, the COVID pandemic in which we lost more than a million Americans. And it seemed that you know, taking stock of how things, uh, how things are now, what's changed, what hasn't, was kind of apropos. And in looking at the situation now, we found that things had unfortunately not gotten better. The situation of, of what I call the men without work problem has actually kind of um, worsened. But the problem has also changed in major dimensions because almost unimaginably, we've ended up with this uh, post-pandemic peacetime labor shortage with millions and millions and millions of unfilled jobs and a workforce millions and millions short of where we would have expected on the pre-pandemic trajectories and also a sort of a new, a new face to the worklessness phenomenon with new groups seeming to join the prime age men. So that's grim. I'm curious about the, just relative to that phenomenon that you just described of, you know, it, it's actually getting worse. You know, for a long time, we talked about, about a big part of this challenge being uh, that we didn't have the right kinds of jobs for men who are out of work. We, we saw a decline in manufacturing employment. We produce more stuff than ever, but we we don't need as we haven't needed as many people to do that work. And fields like construction and even in manufacturing right now we, we've got, you know, a couple million open jobs in the in these fields. And there's no doesn't seem to be any magnet magnetism in those in terms of pulling people back in, pulling men back in. What do you make of that? Well when I wrote the first edition the prevailing wisdom in academic and policy circles, I think, is that the problem of declining workforce participation for guys, and I mean by guys I mean the 25 to 54, the so-called you know, men of prime working age, the declining trends in labor force participation were basically a reflection of economic and structural change. The declining demand for less skilled work, decline of manufacturing, as you mentioned, China enters the WTO, disruptive technologies, outsourcing, globalization, all that. And, and certainly that's, I mean, there's truth to that. That's part of it. But my argument then was um, it's not the whole story. And in the case of the U.S., distinct from other advanced uh, affluent democracies, it's probably not even most of the story. Hmm. One of the things that I pointed to back then was the really spookily regular increase in labor force dropout rates, in, not in labor, NILF rates. If you, if you took a look at 
the trends from 65 to 2016, which is more than half a century, was almost a straight line. I mean, it was, let's call it a social science straight line. I mean, it was R squared of 0.96 or something like that. You couldn't tell where the recessions were. You couldn't tell where China had entered the WTO. I mean, there was no evidence from, from, the, uh, from the trajectory of the flight from work of what sorts of economic or structural forces had had any influence on this thing. So in the latest edition, in this post-pandemic edition, of course, I went back and, you know, did my nerd stuff and, you know, did the regression lines. And I cannot explain this to you, but it is almost exactly the same line. Mm. I mean, you start at the same place, you end up where we are now, and those additional six years are just on the trend line that I charted out in mm-hmm. 2016. Uh, I do not have an explanation for it, but it's kind of spooky to see this mm-hmm. because it makes it look more like, you know, like some sort of geological phenomenon than, mm-hmm. you know, than a social science phenomenon. But it's, it's the same slope. It's the same intercept. It's about the same, you know, R squared or percentage of, you know, uh, coefficient of determination. So whatever... Whatever was happening is, you know, is still happening. And back in 2016, there was this line of reasoned inquiry uh, about my book, which went more or less like Eberstadt. There's no work to be had out there. Don't you get it? Mm. And that's kind of harder to say now when we have 11 million unfilled jobs. And that's I think, exactly right. what you're getting right. at, man. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's... It is perplexing, and it does uh, sort of call into question a lot of what a lot of the you know the pre-COVID analysis about what was driving this. So, to get at the spookiness of that line a little bit more, is it is this a phenomenon that's constant across all of the industries in the economy? Is are people pulling out of all jobs in the labor force, or are men pulling out of particular industries? That's a very good question, Jesse. So. From what I have seen, every major sector of the economy has uh, seen a spike in the unfilled jobs, in, in the openings rate of jobs, some more than others. But it's up everywhere. It's up all across the country. It's up uh, for occupations with all skill levels, including the, you know, most modest, what we might think of as the most modest skill levels, the, uh, the positions where real skill is showing up and showing up every day on time and showing up, you know, sober. And there are millions of jobs in with those sorts of specifications too. And yet, and yet, We now have this great resignation, as you know, where workers have probably more bargaining power than at any time in my life, and people aren't getting back into the workforce as much as we would have expected. We, We have this slump from where we would have expected to be uh, if we'd just gone on a pre-COVID trajectory. And that slump can't be explained away by uh, the terrible COVID mortality or even by the consequences of like long COVID and stuff. One, uh, one issue that's come up recently 
related to this that I wanted to get your thoughts on is whether we see, uh, in, talking about men not working, mm-hmm. and we've had this idea that they're still prime age, but but at the on the right side of that mm-hmm. curve. Mm-hmm. A labor economist I was talking with um, at MZ was saying, you know, we're starting to see this among younger men, you know, taking part-time work. His theory was that it's more flexibility in terms of, like, I've got online stuff that I'm doing that I need my free time. Anyway, I'm just wondering if you've looked at younger men as a f- part of this phenomenon, like what's happening with them? You know, I haven't looked as closely at that as I probably should have because I've been looking at these aggregated job figures and the national data, as you both know, are extremely generous in their definition of work. If you work for one hour in the you know previous uh, week being questioned in the you know in, in that uh, particular survey month, one hour that week will qualify as being in the workforce. Mm. And so, I have yeah, that's generous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you see what I mean. I mean <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it sets the high uh, the high bar, not the low bar for what we might see here. And so I have not looked into the whole question of multiple jobs, flexibility and work. Um, Those are important questions. But what you do see is you see that with each, in in speaking to the 20-somethings, since the 60s, I think even since the 50s, each rising cohort of prime-age guys has had a lower connection to the workforce through their trajectory from 25 through 54 at each, you know, each year in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It's been going down, down, down almost, almost every five-year period. And we, we don't have a, um, again, we don't have so a really good explanation. Just, just to clarify that, you're, you're saying that, say I'm, I'm moving from the 40 to 45 realm or, or age bracket, the previous group of 45-year-olds would have been, had more engagement than the incoming 45-year-olds. Is that? Exactly. If we, okay. if we, so like the class, the class born in 1940 would have had a higher trajectory through all of these years of life than the, uh, than the class born five years later and the class born five years after that. Right. It's almost like rings of a tree, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. I see. Yeah, that's great. So if young workers aren't immune to the non-work phenomena and it's also across all of the industries, is there any subset of prime age men that seem to be immune? I know you've talked some about immigrant workers having different attitudes. Is there any differentiation across racial lines for men that makes a distinction of whether they pull out of the labor force or not? Excellent question, Jesse. So, you put your finger on one group that's high performers who are the foreign-born uh, guys in the workforce, Hispanic foreign-born guys with no no high school degree present almost as if they were college-born guys in America. I mean, the we know there's a big educational gap, but but that kind of like the that that erases all of the all of the gap there. We know that there's a big gap between um, African Americans and Anglo's, and between African Americans and other groups. But black guys who are married 
have higher labor force participation rates than white guys who aren't married. So this, you know, family structure or marriage factor is really important. It's kind of uh, politically forbidden to talk about this in certain realms, including too much of the academy. But if you can't call things by their proper names, you're not going to be able to see the dimensions of the phenomenon. I'm trying to think if there are any. So there's the, there's the family structure thing. There's the uh, immigration uh, dimension to it. There's something I'm just starting to get into, and I, I guess this is kind of like a stay tuned uh, portion. But mostly I have been using national figures on this, on uh, labor force participation. And most of the homework that I've seen by labor economists, which I am not, uh, also looks at nationwide uh, figures. And that's kind of reasonable because we're one country and we're one economy and we're one national you know, market. But there are astonishing discrepancies across the country in labor force participation rates. And uh, my colleague Peter Van Ness and I are just starting to pick at these. Uh, but, you know, from... Fargo, North Dakota to parts of Florida, you get a discrepancy of 50 percentage points in adult labor force participation. Some of this is, you know, retirement communities in Florida, but not all of it is. Even if you look at prime age working, there's just extraordinary differences there. And I hope I'll be able to tell you more about that and what the secret sauce seems to be. Uh, but as I say, that's kind of stay tuned. So just so this book is obviously about men, but large portion of the labor force now is women. So I was curious to get your thoughts on has this phenomena started to spread to women? Are women immune to this phenomena or not? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. In the book, I force mainly focus on men, but not only on men. During the early post-war period, you know, we had this um, transformation of the workforce because women, women have always worked. But after uh, after '46, they could get paid for work, and so they you know, got, came into paid labor too in a big way. But while there was this tremendous transformation of the labor force in the United States the work rates and the labor force participation rates were going up steadily from about 1950 to the year 2000. If it had been like a one-for-one displacement of uh, guys by girls, it would have flatlined. So this was like an augmentation and a supplementing of the workforce. But since the year 2000, the, the labor force participation rates for both men and women have been going down. So they've both been suffering in this respect. And one of the things which I have watching, and I mention in this book, is the possible development of certain aspects of this men without work syndrome among certain segments of America's uh, younger uh, female population. It's I don't want to say this is a red flashing light. I would say at the moment it's a yellow light. But in particular, the group that I think we should be concerned about are the prime age women who are not in the labor force 
or education or training without kids at home and not currently married. Now, that isn't as small a group as you might think. That has been a very rapidly growing group over the last half century. And there are now millions and millions of sisters in those ranks. If you take a look at how they say they spend their time through the same sorts of time use surveys that I looked at the male labor force dropouts through in this book, you see some stuff that doesn't look so good. Just like the male labor force dropouts, you see a real retreat reported, self-reported from civil society. Very little worship, very little volunteering, very little charitable work. Just like the male workforce dropouts, you see surprisingly little help with others at home or help with work around the house. Just like the guys, you see a lot of screen time. Not as much as the guys. The guys are like 2,000 hours a year. I mean, it's like a full-time job. Uh, But catching up real fast. And the other thing that you see that I think is a real warning sign is self-reported pain medication use. The level for 2021 for this group of women I'm mentioning to you was about the same Uh, Almost half of the women say they were taking pain medication every day, not necessarily opioids, but pain medication every day, which was about the same proportion as for the guys in 2013 when the late, great Alan Kruger did a paper on this where he highlighted this as part of the, the problem of pain that we were seeing there. So they look pretty similar is what I'm hearing And are they also, these people obviously aren't starving, so they're getting their funds from somewhere. Are non-working women and non-working men getting funds from the same place? And where are they getting funds from? I can't tell you yet. I haven't gone into that. I can tell you about the guys. I can't tell you about the girls yet, but um, to be continued. Talk a little bit about the men. How How do people who are not in the labor force, and with men, of course, they're not eligible for a lot of the safety net benefits. So how are they, how are they getting by? Well, with, with help from girlfriends and with help from family, including Uncle Sam and the family. The, say, what you, say what you mean by that. Uh, the archipelago of disability insurance programs in the United States. One, one big informational gap we have is that the crazy quilt of disability programs in the U.S. don't talk to each other. And so there's no place you can go in Washington. There's no office where you can ask somebody how many people in the United States are receiving disability benefits because the Social Security Administration's several programs don't talk to the Veterans Administration's programs don't talk to the state programs, don't talk to workers' comp. I tried to get at some of this in my book by uh, looking at some surveys that had at least a few of these things. And those numbers suggested that well over half of the guys who were workforce dropouts 
uh, were receiving at least one disability benefit themselves, often two, sometimes more than that. Um, about two-thirds of the guys were living in homes that received at least one of these benefits. Now, if you... these, I. These are, this is not a princely lifestyle, as you, know, as you have seen, as you know, that people are, uh, people are affording themselves from this. There's a lot of misery in this, but it is an alternative to the, uh, to the workforce uh, and is lar- it offers now the possibility of a work-free alternative to the workforce for, uh, for a lot of people. And one of the things which really horrifying to see in this. And I think that a lot of this has been corrected since the, um, since the first edition of the book, but maybe not all, was the uh, unintended extent to which disability uh, enrollment was contributing to the opioid crisis. You could be eligible for, for low-income government health assistance if you were in various disability programs for more than three or four months. Uh, then if you found the right pain pill factory, you could go to a pain pill quack and get a script for 90 Oxycontins for, uh, and that's a lot of Oxycontins, for $3 uh, out of pocket. And so un- – <laughs> In a completely unintended way, these programs are just supposed to be protecting people. We're helping to fuel the uh, the explosion of opioids. So I'm, I'm curious about this uh, this phenomenon that or this problem that you pointed to, of like there's nowhere to go to find out who's getting benefits, like uh, across all of these different programs and agencies. I mean, it, it seems like in the modern information technology world and the advent of artificial intelligence and, you know, massive computing power, like this should not be the hardest thing. You know, it, it's hard to get government agencies to work together. And I'm sure there are privacy issues that have to be overcome. And But I'm just curious, I mean, it, has anybody ever attempted to do that kind of coordination, information coordination to figure out uh, when you've got, You've got somebody who is on multiple streams of federal benefits, even just for statistical purposes, to know to understand the population. Well, well Brent, as you know, our uh, colleague Bruce Meyer has been trying to link up administrative data records uh, on government programs with um, with other sources of information on income and surveys on poverty. And Bruce has found that the survey-based assessments, uh, self-reported surveys usually, are often way short of what's actually actually being spent and what's actually being received. So there's a lot of room for improving this within the government. If anybody does, does have the information that you're looking for, I will bet it's in the private sector, and I will bet it's proprietary. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm you know, there's a, a number of initiatives underway, at least at the conceptual level right now, of sort of creating government data sharing clouds that it, you know, housing them at universities so that people can, you know, researchers can get access to do that kind of very sophisticated. And I mean, for it's an enormous amount of information. Obviously, it's going to require a lot of work, but 
it seems like an area from a social policy standpoint that we could we could learn so much out of it in terms of what our what our programs are doing. It seems like such a painfully obvious. Yeah. Thing yeah. To do, well, this, you're a specialist in the painfully obvious <laughs> things. I'm a so, professor <laughs> of painfully obvious. So, but so there's another painfully obvious uh, lacuna in this whole uh, sorry study, and that's the invisible excons. I mean, mm. the, for reasons that I can't explain, the U.S. government is resolutely incurious mm. about the total number of uh, adults in America with a felony conviction in their background. Mm. I mean, everybody talks about mass incarceration, and we know that you know, there are over two million people behind bars, and this is like really different from any other you know, industrial democracy. What we don't say is that for every person who's behind bars, there are over 10 other adults who have a felony conviction in their background who are in society as a whole, and we don't collect any information uh, on any sort of regular basis about them. It means that like one out of seven maybe, I estimate in the latest edition, one out of seven adult guys has a uh, felony in his background, probably more than one seven for these prime age guys. And we're thinking this isn't interesting information because why? You know, that this has no impact on this problem that we're looking at or on other social problems. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of scandalous. So I, I'd like us for the next piece or part of our conversation here, I'd like to kind of try to divide it a little bit. Because as I said, when I first read your book and was, you know, I'd go around telling people about the time motion studies and people are horrified by this idea that it's not just that they aren't in a job, it's that they're not working, period. You know, like that, that's, and like, they're, what are they doing with all that time, um, screen time, as, as you found? So what I want to do is what we tried to do, Robert and I and, and Harry Holzer tried to do, was kind of think about what policy lovers are there for us to pull to try to, to deal with this. And what I've gathered from your discussion here today and other things that I've uh, listened to and read, there's a lot of doubt about whether we have any policy lovers to pull on this um, in terms of changes to incentives and programs that might redirect men toward work and it, it, I mean first of all do I have that right and if I am if I do have it right what does that tell you about sort of what's wrong and what needs to be done so what we've seen over the last more than half a century <clears throat> is that unlike unemployed guys who get back into employment in usually in fairly short order. Um, guys who are dropouts from the workforce tend to be long-termers. That's not true of the guys who are out of the workforce because they're full-time students. But there's a reason for that. And the overwhelming majority, the absolutely overwhelming majority of the guys who are uh, dropouts from the workforce are not studying, uh, training, getting ready to get back into the workforce. So it is apparent that for two generations and more, the 
economic pull of marketplaces isn't drawing people back, it's drawing guys back into the workforce. And we're seeing in a, a particularly acute instantiation of that now with this nationwide labor scarcity and the uh, labor force participation rates are still you know, at uh, such uh, low levels. So um, markets by themselves aren't performing the function because this isn't markets uh, markets attend to economic problems this is a different this is not an economic problem and what and so yeah, yeah. go into that that's the second half of this. Right. if it's not an economic problem because that's what we've been told for yeah. 10 years or, it's, it is a um, it is a sociological which is a nice way of saying a pathological problem and it means that we have to approach it in a different sort of manner now if I, if I were the king of heaven, I would use my wand to fix the family in the United States, and, or at least to, uh, to, to use the Wayback Machine to get family structure to look more like it did, say, in 1965, when all these trends kind of seemed to start going in a really strange direction. I don't think that there's, there are any policy levers that we have that's going to let us do that. My own preference would be to also uh, have uh, U.S. religiosity turn back uh, to a profile closer to 1960 or 65. That's more controversial, but I think that unquestionably there'd be more attachment to the workforce with a profile more like that. That's also not going to happen, and there's no government policy that can encourage that. So let me let me interrupt and just ask this then. I mean, in, in the mid-'90s, we had uh, our our work problem then was identified as welfare dependent women. You know, were out of the workforce. They were on a effectively a lifetime entitlement, not dissimilar to disability um, and, and its effect and, and disability and payments in effect. And we said we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to require you to work or to prepare for work, and you're limited to five years. That insight worked, right? It raised incomes, it reduced poverty, it reduced child poverty, it did all sorts of things that we regard as being positive sort of outcomes from that policy. Now, we know that men aren't attached to directly to the safety net in the same way that those women were, but does that principle apply here? I think absolutely it applies here. I think exactly. Uh, and it's an ironic parallel, Brent, because... Three years before the, uh, the controversial welfare reforms of the 1990s, three years before that was the last time that, America's, that American men's unemployment headcount and out of the workforce headcount touched. For the, mm. for the last 30 years almost, there have been more dropouts than unemployed guys. And this year, there are like four times as many as there were then. A similar approach, I think what you're getting at maybe, is that a similar approach towards uh, reforming our disability archipelago uh, might have a sort of a push factor uh, where the pull factor of the miracle of the market hasn't really worked so well. I argue, or I wouldn't say I argue, I say I muse, 
in this book about what might happen if we had something that was more of a sort of a work-first principle Mm -hmm. in our uh, social welfare policies. You know a lot more about this, and I think, Jesse, you know more about this than I do because I don't know the arcana and the details here. Mm -hmm. But in talking in very broad terms, a work-first principle where you – the keys to the kingdom required you to show up for training and then to show up for a job and then to stay with the job, um, I think would have very, very different consequences from what we've got in place, which is just raise your hand and be helpless and dependent until you can qualify for early social. It would probably be a lot more expensive than what we have. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, but so I mean, expensive social, in what way? Though expensive, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're get, you're getting <laughs> yeah. at exactly what yeah. I what I was trying yeah. to say is that um, the the unintended consequences of the policy would be, I think, a lot more attractive than the unintended mm-hmm. consequences of the current policies. To kind of close this out, I mean, there would be those saying, "Well, this is a completely disability is a completely different issue than welfare dependency, right?" There's not never been a never been a real question that people on welfare uh, weren't up to working. They just had an out from working. But we've got people on disability, at least for many of them, because they are actually disabled. And is this is it really a viable strategy, a programmatic strategy, to say we're going to impose some sort of a work requirement or maybe even take, I mean, my idea is even if you are disabled, there may be some works, work that you can still do. And maybe there's a way of trading off part of the benefits for paid employment and, you know, a bunch of things. But how would you respond to um, people saying that's just, you know, this is, these are apples and oranges. You can't really compare them. It's a very important uh, point because our social welfare programs are supposed to protect the vulnerable and the helpless. So um, they're also supposed to protect the vulnerable and the helpless. Mm-hmm. And if we, uh, if we look at, for example, the little experiment, and you may know much more about this than I do, that the Brits tried with disability reform, uh, simply asking uh, recipients to come back in for another check with their doctors dropped the rolls by about 40%. And it's not because people couldn't find doctors at the National Health Service there. Um, We've we've got this strange situation with, with our disability enrollment where the very, very fastest areas of growth for uh, two generations have been with um, musculoskeletal problems and psychological problems. Um, if um, some of that, some of that pain in the disability system is caused by the system. I this mean, is, the, yeah. This is, yeah. Unfortunately, this is the question, and the, we can't do the counterfactual right now, but I wonder whether there might be less misery. Yeah. So I wanted to flip a couple pages back to the sociology discussion and ask you, some people tie the, the breakdown of family to the increase in women's work and bemoan the rise of a two-earner household and say that to get men back to work, 
a return to a single earner model would be what was needed, and that would also perhaps return family at the same time. We have a survey coming out in a couple weeks on workplace social capital and the finding. One of the main takeaways is that college-educated women are hugely invested in work, but they're also hugely invested in their communities and are this social glue Mm -hmm. in America. So that seems to point against any sort of notion that college-educated women are to blame for the breakdown of family. But what is your take on that opinion? I'm pretty open society. And if if a home wants to have one earner, uh, I guess that's fine. If a home wants to have two earners, I guess that's fine. Um, what we can see is that of the guys who are not in the workforce, a really tiny fraction of them say that they're at home because they're taking care of other people. I mean, um, maybe uh, maybe someday in some alternative future that will be very different. But it's been it's been true for an awful long time that there's a care chasm in the U.S. with a, call it a social construct, call it sociobiology, for whatever reasons. The guys kind of like uh, end up uh, being uh, providers and women end up doing both providing and providing for the kids and stuff. Uh, we've got this really, I think, unnatural situation now where we've got this growing share of men who are not providers. And when they're not providers, they don't turn out to be nurturers either. I think this was in the book that, you know, women work all the time. Like, they never stop working. You, know, you look at those time motion studies, and women are constantly at work. Uh, this is not true of men. I'm, I regret to tell everybody listening. Uh, newsflash. That, newsflash that, that men are kind of lazy when it comes to doing that work of knitting communities together. So it's a, that, this kind of goes to the point that I was making just previous to this, which is there seems to be a real disparity in the way that we treat men and women around this issue of work. And it's, you know, as, as the father of daughters, it doesn't feel right to me. It feels like we've let, it feels like we've let men off easy. There's an awful lot of uh, writing uh, over recent decades about asking the question, are men uh, dispensable in a modern society? And certainly, uh, certainly men seem to be struggling in modern America in a way that women aren't. Um, is that because of the nature of modern technology? Is that because of our mores? Is that because of, I, mean, I don't think that I've got anything terribly mm. uh, enlightening to tell you about this. It looks like a big historical fact, and big historical facts usually have a lot of things. Up a lot of in yeah, a lot of inputs to this. Uh, I'm I'm wondering what the input is of men themselves. You know, not to, not to say it's the only, you know, it's only the attitudes of men or the only the behaviors of men. They're only, you know, responsible all they're solely responsible for the phenomenon. But I wonder what the role of of men is for their own kind of immiseration. So, I don't do a lot of work with 
public opinion polls or psychosocial or any of that sort of stuff, right? But it is apparent to me in a way that I can't put decimal points on that there's been an extraordinary change in mores Mm -hmm. in my lifetime. I mean, if you go back and think of what was different in 65 versus Mm -hmm. now, the overwhelming majority of uh, prime age guys were married. And the overwhelming majority of them had kids under their roofs with them. The overwhelming majority of those guys had been through the military. An awful lot of them had served in World War II or in Korea. The modern welfare state was still a twinkle in Lyndon Johnson's eye. Mm. Um, I mean, these are, I mean, the modern crime explosion hadn't happened yet. If you used drugs, you got in a whole lot of trouble. I mean, these are just a few of the things, and a lot of people might say, well, that wasn't wasn't the world that we want, pal. But it was a very different world, and the guardrails and the socialization and the incentives uh, were were very different. Uh, And it's impossible for me to think that doesn't have some bearing on the past we find ourselves in today. This is a good point at which we kind of I wanted to kind of bring in some of Jesse's life history here you know in terms of what you've observed as living in communities or in a community in which non-work and has been growing among Appalachians uh, people who uh, who are native to that region how do what is what does it sound like when you when you read Nick's work? What what does that what does it resonate with you um, in terms of your lived experience of this? I was actually thinking as you were talking, Nick, about Yuval Levin's points about formative institutions because it seems like what you're finding is a breakdown of those military. Even you have a lot of data on summer jobs, and summer jobs are Brent writes about this, a formative institution for workers. And you look around it, at least in a lot of communities that I've been in, and there's not a formative institution at the church. There's not a formative institution of family. And if people don't join the military or have a summer job, there's not a formative institution anywhere to teach people skills, just social skills. And it sounds like that's what you're finding as far as where people would be formed even to do a good job at work in the first place. Well, you put your finger on it, I think, Jesse. I mean, so where, what are those going to be? And it's, it's also, I do not think, uh, a coincidence that there's been such a plunge in trust in so many major institutions in our society. Part of that is because people are disconnected from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they don't. They don't. But, have yeah. It. What's the chicken? What's the egg? There. I mean, that's but the summer yeah. job thing that you mentioned. Uh, I would like to mention as well. As I mean, I grew up just shortly after the Stone Age uh, ended, but back in those days, uh, it was an absolute norm in an awful lot of America go out and get a summer job. And you know, if you wanted to spend money on anything, you certainly wanted to do that. Uh, you can see some of the numbers that I presented at the book launch of this book about the 
15 to 17-year-old population in America. What proportion uh, was in the labor force in the 70s in July versus today? We've had an absolute collapse of the summer job in modern America. And, you know, okay, so there's like enrichment and, you know, remedial and internships and all of these different things, but there isn't summer jobs. And what that means is that now people are in their 20s before they have any kind of like uh, trial uh, by fire in the workforce. And that that's like 10 years t- too late. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary because uh, during the summer, it's been my observation, particularly since the pandemic, but even before then, we were bringing people from Eastern Europe, young people from Eastern Europe, to do our summer jobs for us, right? So it's not... It's not a question of, like, there isn't work to do. It's, it's very consonant with the rest of the labor shortage. So it, I think what it says is we've got this sort of society-wide collapse, <laughs> a partial collapse of uh, work morale. You know, like, this is something that is expected, something that is good for you, something that pays you in a number of different ways. And, and that has that has really evaporated for a lot of folks. And it's not just like poor people or middle-class people or rich people. It's everybody. I'm going to jump in here on that as well. It is something that you talk a little bit about is the rise of universal basic income. It's a attractive policy position. And young people everywhere in East Tennessee, in New York City, there are some amount of young people who say, why, why do I even have to work? Is work something that is outdated? Can't we get the robots to do it for us? And you make this great point of work is about serving your community. It's not just about being paid, but what does work actually give people? If you had to give a pitch to the young people today, why should they go work besides just making an income? Probably the most important aspects of work are non-monetary. I mean, work is a service to others that helps complete you. It's a whole part of one's own formation. Uh, That's, I think, critical to finding meaning in one's life. I mean, along with finding meaning in family and finding meaning through community, finding meaning through faith. It's, a, it's an absolutely critical bond, and it gets back to what our former president, Arthur Brooks, used to talk about with earned success. I mean, you, no matter what your station is, you can find success through work, and it has spillovers into other parts of your life. Uh, so, I, mean, I think that's that's what is so important about uh, about work. It's not the money, although I mean, money money is good. Money helps. Yeah, but that's well, not all. Well, you just gave the vocation, career, and work pitch on on the question of work that it is broader than just economics. Um, that we are not just homo economicus. That we are we are human beings meant for engagement with other human beings. Work is one aspect of that of that need for engagement. And I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. So thank you, Nick Eversat, for joining us and for writing this book and updating it and keeping this issue in front of the American public. 
Jesse, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.